Welcome to podcast number four in our series in World History 2. In podcast number three, we talked about the transatlantic economy, trade wars, and colonial rebellion. We expanded our definition and discussion on the economic system called mercantilism. We also looked at, and hopefully if nothing more was realized in that podcast, that the theory of mercantilism was a lot better than the reality of how effective and more or less destructive mercantilism was. We also then looked at the impact of slavery, looking at the origins of the idea as well as what the overseas colonies needed that the mother country was trying to establish. We then looked at the establishment of the three-point trade between Europe, Africa, and the Americas. Finally, we ended our discussion by looking at something that we'll expand on today in looking at the wars of the 1700s. The 1700s was a violent century in a variety of places in Europe as well as the Americas. I mentioned in that podcast that wars tended to involve primarily professional forces, at least in the first 75 years of that century, meaning that the countries such as Spain, Portugal, France, and England, their armies fought with an established internationally recognized uniform. They were disciplined. They knew how to fight and block formation. Then there were also two primary areas or major areas of the conflict, that being, of course, Central Europe itself, across the English or within the English Channel as well, and then finally in Europe's overseas colonies in the Americas. Specifically, I'm going to be honing in on the conflicts that were present here in North America. And the reason being is because the foundation that these conflicts establish will eventually launch what becomes known retrospectively as the American Revolution. In terms of the wars of the 1700s, I'm only going to mention a couple and just a quick summary of the conflict itself giving me time to zero in on the most important element of that. And that, of course, was who was the winner and what did they win? The first one that we're going to take a look at is what becomes known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. you got to admit, that's probably one of the most original names for a conflict, a global conflict in all of world history. However, it really was about a sailor's ear. No kidding. The War of Jenkins' Ears, starting in 1731, was a result of Spanish impressment of British ships. Britain, despite the fact of her, by and large, supremacy on the high seas, did not mean every time that her sailors always won or the merchant ships that she sailed always dominated any particular naval skirmish or conflict. The fact of the matter is the Spanish were known to gang up and occupy on unescorted British merchant ships. By the, the idea of impressment is that Spanish sailors would board the British ships, steal the cargo, possibly steal the people as well, or kidnap them, and either let the ship run unassisted until eventually it crashed or sank or both, or it could possibly even take over the ship if it was in good shape. If there was gunpowder on board, that would certainly be taken, as well as any kind of weaponry. 
Sometimes the ships were simply left and set aflame and watched while they sank. The problem was is that this would be driving up insurance costs out of Lloyd's of London as well as other major insurance companies throughout Europe. It was also, of course, ruining the reputation of Great Britain as well. Well, the captain of a British ship, Rebecca, was briefly detained by a Spanish naval force. And the Spanish captain, Fandino, cut off Jenkins' ear and said, go tell your king that I will do the same to him if the naval harassment doesn't stop. Interesting. The Spanish are the ones doing the impressment, engaging in those battles, yet it is a threat to the king by Spain that if it continues, there's going to be hell to pay. Well, and of course, that didn't go down well. So regardless, the conflict was resolved, Britain appearing stronger because of being able to ultimately push back the Spanish. That then segues to our next conflict less than 10 years later with the War of the Austrian Succession from 1740 to 1748. This conflict was primarily on European soil, where the great powers essentially ganged up on one another. It would be Britain and Austria fighting or opposite France and Prussia. The war would take place again for roughly eight years, when by the end of the succession, meaning the figuring out who would be the ultimate king on the Austrian throne, Britain and Prussia would ultimately win. Even though they were on opposite sides, Prussia came out of it feeling much stronger, and Britain certainly was recognizably stronger. And again, these are just quick summaries of these conflicts because I want to summarize at the end the long-lasting effect of these European conflicts. The next one that we'll take a look at before the ultimate crescendo conflict after that is the Seven Years' War from 1754 to 1763. Okay, yeah, a little bit more than just seven years, but leave it to the historians to try to quantify the number of years that a conflict takes place. If you think that's bad, try our 100 years war, which actually takes place for 116 years. But this also would be known on the, in the colonies as the French and Indian War. This conflict, however, was Britain's doing from the, from the onset. It stemmed from Great Britain's desire or aspiring dreams to be able to expand her overseas colonies in North America. The problem was that France was too weakened to resist this, this expansion, and don't think for a moment that Britain wasn't aware of it. As a result of this conflict, which were a bunch of basically minor skirmishes throughout the years of this conflict, ultimately resulted in the Treaty of Paris of 1763. While your egotistical British military elite pounded their chest up on this victory, it also then, we looked back at these other conflict, and again, there's more certainly than the three that I'm highlighting here, but the bottom denominator that near, common denominator that needs to be understood is Great Britain always came out ahead. She always won the conflicts. Britain beat each individual European country when they fought by themselves. She fought and won when battling the Native Americans here on their own soil. Great Britain even won when the European powers ganged up against her. Great Britain also prevailed when the European powers ganged up on one another and then grabbed the 
Native Americans for additional support. Great Britain still won. Because of that, by the time we get into the 1770s, specifically in North America, Great Britain clearly was the power to be reckoned with. She had the world's most formidable military in terms of her navy, as well as her army. She had a, practically an unblemished reputation going back decades now. However, with this victory at the end of the French and Indian and or Seven Years War, Great Britain, for the first time that was recognizable by a British officer, went out of their way to rub the noses of their victory to the individuals that lost, specifically the Native Americans. When Great Britain fought and claimed to take land, that specifically was not theirs. That British officer that was disgusted by this was none other than a gentleman by the name of George Washington. This leads us to the middle of the 1770s. Needless to say, especially for my American listeners or my overseas listeners who with a good background in world history and or American history, knew that when I talked about the wars of the 1700s, you were anticipating that I was going to be bringing up the American Revolution. And of course I will. But chronologically speaking, this conflict is in the last 25 years of that century. I needed to summarize those prior conflicts so that one could actually understand Great Britain is a formidable power. The reason I'm stressing that is because mythically we can tend to believe that the American Revolution was a rather quick war that was easily won and nothing could be further from the truth. Why then would George Washington take it upon himself to leave Mount Vernon, his beloved estate, as well as his beloved wife Martha and his two stepchildren? What about him? What did he see? What did he know that would lead him to believe that if he personally recruited a group of volunteers and took up arms against Great Britain, that he would have any proverbial snowball's chance in hell of really attempting to defeat a power which he once fought in and personally witnessed Britain not losing a conflict in three quarters of a century, if not longer. The reason, ladies and gentlemen, is because I told you, and I wasn't wrong when I said it, that Great Britain did win physically and politically and militarily. But what I didn't share with you was the downside of that victory. With each victory that Great Britain amassed, and another feather in her cap is the way she saw it, Great Britain acquired more land. Land, ladies and gentlemen, cost money. Land has to be defended. When Great Britain won territory from the natives or won territory from France, Great Britain doesn't just get to plant her flag there and tear out the French one. And just assume that nobody's going to touch that because the British flag is there. Of course not. Britain's going to have to defend that territory, which means her army is going to have to get larger. Her navy is going to have to accommodate more soldiers 
making that six-week journey, assuming all weather cooperates, that six-week journey from Europe to the Americas. On top of that increase in expenses is at a time when Great Britain empty pockets are essentially running on E, empty. Her financial gas tank is beyond an eighth of a tank towards empty, or from empty, I should say. That said, George Washington was aware of this. And because of that, he thought the time was ripe to be able to teach Great Britain a lesson that with the way she not only embellished her spoils of victory, the way that up until the middle of 1775, there was a lot of issues with taxation without representation. You knew I would eventually be saying that phrase. The way that Great Britain punished the British colonists in North America for what they perceived as the American colonists cooperating with the French and the Native Americans during those conflicts. To the point that Great Britain established the proclamation line where she boxed the British colonists in. And that financially hurt George Washington. From there, that is the reason why George Washington thought the time was ripe to be able to push Great Britain back to a more accommodating stance with her British counterparts of, of co colonists, of which George Washington was certainly one of. So when we look at the American Revolution, I want to back up a moment before we actually get to the conflict. I do not cover the conflict here nearly in as much detail as I do in my podcasts in American history, where I cover chronologically in the various stages of the war all the way through to its conclusion. Please know, though, with my background being in military history, I'm not an individual who looks at every battle and second guesses the commanders on the ground at that time or the naval officers attempting to run the Navy, the Navy in whatever way to be able to defeat the enemy. Number one, I don't see much point, especially in podcasts, much less in my classroom, to renegotiate a conflict in which we already know the outcome. Even if we could figure out, okay, maybe if the Army that phalanx had gone here and army group B had gone there, the outcome could have been different. Fine, but it'll always be speculation, even if somehow it could be proven. I still have yet to find that proverbial time machine that can get me back to the conflict so that I can jump out and say, hey, let's regroup here because you're going to want to change plans because of the beauty of 2020 vision, looking back through rose-colored glasses things are not going to play out the way you right now think they will be. In other words, it's pointless, as I say, to rehash these battles. So what I focus on is why did the, was the events leading up to the war, a quick summary of the war itself, and then most importantly, the dominoes that fall as a result of the way the war drew to a close, because that's what's going to have an effect on human civilization going forward. So with the American Revolution, again, I would be remiss not to at least cover the conflict itself. The reason being is because the dominoes that fall from this conflict will have a far, far greater reach than any of the revolutionaries and founding fathers in a future United States of America could ever have imagined. 
The American Revolution, though, please know that just that title itself, now this is a conflict that, correctly speaking, chronologically speaking, lasts from 1775 to 1783 until ultimately yet another Treaty of Paris will be signed, but this time with Great Britain receiving her first massive blow and a loss of significant territory. So that said, the whole term American Revolution, please know that that is a title that American historians have written into the American history books. Great Britain does not see it that way. It is not referred to as the American Revolution, but rather the Rebellion of North America or the 1770s North American Rebellion to the point that there's not even a coherent single term for that conflict because it was one of many that Great Britain was dealing with throughout the 1700s. However, here in America, also please know that even the term, um, the title of that conflict, the American Revolution, is not also agreed upon unanimously. I had a colleague at Moraine Valley Community College where I taught in the southwestern suburbs of Chicago who also refused to re refer to this conflict as a revolution. And he is an American historian and much respected. Clearly outpaces me in education as he has a PhD, whereas I do not. However, I do vehemently disagree that the term, that this war was truly not a revolution. Why? Because if we unpack that term revolution, it's more important to find out what revolution doesn't mean rather than what it does mean. Revolution comes from a Chinese word and which translated to English means opportunity and danger. Interesting, those two words going together, danger and opportunity, but that's what it means. Revolution is not a reform. A reform is a change within a given system. A reform means that we're going to keep that basic outline the same, but we're going to tweak the insides. We're going to change a little bit of the inside. That's not revolution. A synonym for revolution is the word replacement. And that's important to note. And that is my ultimate line and why I defend this conflict being rightfully titled the American Revolution because there is not only one, but other significant replacements that are going to take place that will make this North American territory drastically different between the years 1775 and when the conflict is over in 1783. In terms of replacement, where do you want to begin? First off, the ruling power will no longer be Great Britain not to give away the end of the story there, but it will not be Great Britain. It will be the Americans. That's a replacement. We didn't keep Britain here and then change her clothes. We didn't keep Britain here and then modify how she ruled. That's a reform. That's not a revolution. Great Britain was kicked out of what eventually be called the 13 colonies. She's kicked out of here, replaced by American politicians. Politically, the system that's going out is a constitutional monarchy. What's coming in? A confederation congress. I know you might have tried jumping me and saying, no, a constitutional democracy. We'll get there, but we're not going to do that first. We're going to have to fall flat on our faces in our first attempt to rule ourselves, but we'll get to that later. 
But a constitutional monarchy is going out. The most important part of that, monarchy. We, the future politicians of America, will have no tolerance for any type of a king or queen here in our newly founded independent states. So that's the second thing that's being replaced. A third, economically. The system of mercantilism is going out. And it will be replaced by something called capitalism. Now, you might say, wow, genius of the founding fathers to replace that economic system. Well, careful, because once again, you're saying that in over 200 and some odd years of hindsight, rather than what they're thinking at that time. Mind you, ladies and gentlemen, when Great Britain sailed away with the world's strongest navy and army, which she also took with us was the world's most respected economy, as well as the most expected and reliable currency. To be replaced by what? Yeah, you're right. The continental dollar. Sure, that and a quarter will get you a cup of coffee, right? Because nobody has any confidence in it. This newly founded country produces its own currency based on what? But once again, it is a replacement, not a reform. But we cannot reform mercantilism because we don't have overseas colonies. We're lucky if we can govern the territory we win at the results of the revolution. But having overseas colonies in other parts of the world? Sorry, that's not happening. Therefore, mercantilism as an economic system, by and large, won't fit us. So when we'll talk more about that as we wrap this revolution up. But first off, please know something else. The American Revolution was the, not the first political revolution of significant importance in world history. Prior to this one, we did have the English Revolution. Right after this one, we're going to have the French Revolution. We're going to have the Russian Revolution. And I mean true revolutions. One entire system coming going out and another brand new one coming in. Political revolutions, by and large, folks, are unbelievably dangerous. They're also extremely deadly, to the point that a man, a historian by the name of Dr. Crane Britton, attempted one time in, during his tenure as a professor to review all of the political revolutions of the world. And he began to see a pattern or at least he thought he did, that all political revolutions have three drastic stages. The first stage, stage number one, is change is peacefully initiated. Most of the time it's written down. It's agreed upon by the political revolutionaries. And then it's submitted to the powers that be. And of course, the powers that be want no part of this change, so they reject it which then leads to our second stage, the arrival of the military arm of the revolution. They enact military aggression. This becomes known as the reign of terror, not simply because of the French-themed one, but again, these political revolutions have, Dr. Britton realized, this second stage, the reign of terror. But the military successes lead the military leaders to by and large execute stage one leaders because they were not smart enough, fast enough, agile enough, whatever the reasons may be. And then that military arm attempts to bring the revolution to a close, but they can't because they killed the brain trust. The reign of terror, the military brass, 
usually is far more muscle than it is brains, more brawn than brains, as they say. And as a result of that, they cannot successfully bring the revolution to a political close. That's when the second generation of the first generation leaders will secretly meet and plan to overthrow the stage two leaders and execute them as well. And those stage two leaders will then bring the revolution to a close. Dr. Brinton clearly was on to something with this established pattern. Stage one, change peacefully initiated. Stage two, the revolution militarily enacted. But then stage three, the political revolution with the second generation revolutionaries brings the revolution to a close. A common denominator, Dr. Brenton said, is that the leaders of the initial stages of a political revolution will never live long enough to see it through to the end because they will be killed by the military who in turn will be killed by the second generation political leaders. Dr. Britton was clearly on to a well-defined outline with almost 100% accuracy. Dr. Britton's three stages of a political revolution clearly mirrored the British Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, except for one glaring problem. You guessed it, America's. America's founding fathers, the stage one leaders, lived to see the revolution successfully brought to a close. Listeners, there never was a reign of terror in America's political revolution, which is why, again, some historians discount or dismiss that America's conflict was a revolution at all. Wait a minute. So to qualify for a revolution, all those founding fathers have to get killed? Hey, thanks for your service. But uh, yeah, according to this model we're working with here, yeah, we're going to have to go ahead and tear your heads off. No. What, what was wrong with the fact that the political leaders in stage one, the John Adams, the Benjamin Franklins, the James Madison and the James Monroe, Thomas Jefferson, what is wrong with the fact that they actually lived long enough to see it through to an end? They did, but it was an anomaly. It wasn't an ex exception to Dr. Crane Britton's three stages or theory of a political revolution, hence his book called The Anatomy of a Revolution. Dr. Britton never did find out why America never had a stage two reign of terror. Can you imagine the look on his face if we could bring him back from paradise, where hopefully he reigns today, can you imagine bringing him back and letting Dr. Britton know that actually there was not one, not two, but three actual attempts to enact a reign of terror within the American Revolution? Why ultimately didn't that pan out? Why, thankfully, did America never experience the dramatic, deadly, violent stage known as the Reign of Terror, 
within America's own revolution. For that, I ask you to tune in to the podcast where I cover the American Revolution and my podcast on the American History One series. And I will explain that in detail with proof of why we never had a stage two in America in our revolution. So with that, George Washington, without realizing that there's a future Dr. Britton that's going to explain just how this revolution took place, what really were they fighting about? Yes, I may have said that taxation without representation, but was there something more to it that the American colonists were fighting for? And if there was, why, by 1783, did Great Britain ultimately throw in the towel? Was she really defeated by George Washington and the revolutionaries? Or was there another reason why the revolution stopped in 1783? And on that, with that question as well, I also also begs the question, why after America attempted to pound its chest rightfully with its news of victory, did we become the laughing stock of almost every monarch around the world? Tune in to the next podcast in our series in World History 2, and I'm going to dive in to what those reasons were. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions, comments, or book recommendations that you might have. If you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting.